Isaiah 36 is where we find ourselves tonight. If you need a Bible, wave at your friend Bud. Isaiah 36, we've finished, as we finished chapter 35, with that we finished the eighth big section of the book of Isaiah. That last section, as we said often, is called the book of woe because of the frequency of that word, the frequency with which that word appears in those eight chapters and the clarity of the theme that emerges, the theme of judgment. Judgment of Jerusalem, of Judah, for unholiness, for unrighteousness, for unfaithfulness, but as much as anything, for lack of confidence that God is who he says he is and will do what he promises to do. Judah is going to be judged for her lack of trust. And that's not just a theme of these last eight chapters. Really, it's a theme of the entire book of Isaiah when you think about it. God asking, who am I to you? What will you allow me to be to you? Will you trust me? And for 35 chapters, God has been reminding Judah of what the answer should be, exhorting them to believe, to trust, to depend. And for 35 chapters, warning Judah of what the consequences will be if they fail to. Also, letting them know what the consequences won't be. God has also been articulating the limits of his judgment. Even in judgment, God remembers mercy. We've said again and again. Why? Because God has said it again and again over these last 35 chapters. He will chasten his people because he loves them, but he will not annihilate them. So turning to chapter 36, fair warning, we're only going to dip our toe in the chapter this evening only going to actually dip our toe in the book of Isaiah this evening. Because chapter 36 is where things change for a minute. Chapter 36 is where prophecy becomes history. Where God's wrath, we've been talking about wrath in Romans, right? Where God's wrath becomes reality. Where it's made manifest. God's mercy is also, in these next few chapters, going to shine out of darkness. If you've made your way to chapter 36, you can see immediately there's something different going on, right? Just visually, chapter 36 looks different, in most of your Bibles at least. It, it's visually different than chapter 35 and the chapters that have come before. Why? The first 35 chapters of Isaiah are Hebrew poetry. And they're written in that familiar pattern. There's an A line, there's a B line, and then we're back again. Sometimes there's a C line, but the point is that there's a general pattern, a rhythm that we've seen in the poetic writing of the first 35 chapters. And it's the same rhythm we're used to seeing in Psalms, in Job, and the other poetical books. Just visually, looking at 35 and 36, you can see something's different. You can see... We're not in poetry anymore. 
For those of you who are sad, okay, I've been digging the prophecy. Prophecy's cool. Don't be sad. We're going to be back there really, really soon. Chapter 40 and forward is going to be back to the poetical structure that we've gotten used to. But here, chapter 36, 37, 38, 39, the Holy Spirit, speaking through Isaiah, obviously, drops into prose. Maybe to emphasize the transition, okay, this isn't prophecy anymore. This isn't what's going to happen. This is what's happening in real time to Isaiah. In these next four chapters, this is going to be Isaiah's present day reality. Not something that's coming, something that's here. And so he's going to give a first person narrative account of what goes on as it goes on, as the Assyrian forces bear down on Jerusalem, marauding across Judah, laying siege to the capital city. The Assyrian army, the instrument of God's judgment. He's been warning about it for almost 30, well, more than 30 chapters now. Now it's here. And Isaiah is going to let us eavesdrop on the conversations and the decisions and the process of making those decisions as they unfold. 36 to 39, not prophecy, reality. Prophecy being fulfilled. Prophecy about to become history. These chapters also form a little bit of an interlude, a little bit of a transition. Because up to this point, the focus has been on the Assyrian threat. Occasionally, the Holy Spirit takes a further perspective, and not occasionally, but actually quite frequency, frequently. We've seen a very long-term perspective. We've seen a long-term fulfillment of fulfillment that hasn't even happened yet, a 70th week of Daniel kind of a fulfillment. But the short-term, the near-term prophecy has, for the most part, been concerning Assyria. On the other side of chapter 39, beginning in chapter 40, when we're back to poetry and back to prophecy, the focus will be on the Babylonian menace. After chapter 39, less focus on Assyria. What God has promised about Assyria will have passed, and the focus will be, okay, what's going to happen next on God's prophetic calendar? 40 to 66, the Babylonian Empire is going to rise up, and the relationship between Babylon and Jerusalem, the relationship that they have with each other, is going to be the focus. But that's coming. That's, that's coming attraction. Let's, let's be where we are. Before we get there, let's be here. And let's take some time this evening to talk about where here is, at this mesh point between chapter 35 and 36. If you've read ahead or if you're familiar with the book of Isaiah, you may have noticed chapter 36, 37, 38, 39 sounds kind of familiar. Glance at it, skim a little bit, feels like you've read that somewhere before. It's almost word for word out of 2 Kings, specifically 2 Kings 18, verse 13, continuing through 2 Kings 20, verse 19. Boy, I think I've seen it somewhere else besides that. You have, because a version of it also shows up in 2 Chronicles chapter 32. So that's interesting. We've got three biblical accounts of the same moment in history, the same series of events. Good chance that you knew that. 
What you may not know is we have another account besides those three. We have an Assyrian account. In the 1800s, archaeologists in Nineveh discovered the annals of Sennacherib. First person description by Sennacherib who led the invasion of Judah of what it was like. And we'll actually read a little bit from it before we're done tonight. What's interesting to me, though, is this is the point where a lot of commentators, a lot of people writing books about the book of Isaiah, hit fast forward. They say, well, this isn't interesting. We've read it all before. I mean, it's, it's fine, but we covered that when we were in the historical books. Sennacherib invades. He isn't successful. Angel of the Lord slays 185,000. Jerusalem is preserved. Blah, blah, blah. Let's get back to prophecy because that's the fun stuff. I don't get that. I mean, I like prophecy as much as the next person. That's not true. I like prophecy more than the next person. But if God says something three times in Scripture and preserves an extra-biblical account, don't we have to assume there's a reason for that? Don't we have to assume there's something here for us? I, I'm going to, if you haven't figured that out. So what are we going to talk about? If we're going to do this, I want to do this well. We've been clicking into super fine detail because, because that's where the Lord has had us. These last few chapters, God has been getting to very concrete, specific, ultra-fine prophecies, long-term and short-term. Let's, let's take a moment and zoom out to get the big picture before we click into history. Let's figure out where we are in time. And to do that, rewind. You don't have to turn there, but in your mind, rewind to Isaiah 7. You probably don't have to turn there because every few weeks we, we talk about it again. Isaiah 7, that's when Judah was really at a crossroads. That's what kicks off this whole adventure. When Ahaz, king of Judah at the time, is troubled because Israel, the divided kingdom, the kingdom of the north of Israel, has aligned themselves with Syria, and they're flexing and making menacing sounds, and they're altogether threatening. Isaiah and Ahaz have a conversation. And Ahaz is counseled by Isaiah. God speaks through Isaiah and says, chill. I've got this. Syria, Israel, they're nothing. They're going to be nothing. The amount that you need to worry about them, nothing. Ahaz disobeys. And this is the watershed that, again, gives, gives forth to everything we've been reading. Ahaz disobeys and he says, you know, that sounds good, but I'm going to trade it for what's behind door number two. I'm going to form an alliance with Assyria because they're strong. And if I really want protection against Syria and Israel, Assyria is the place that's going to help me. This is a turning point because from that moment on, Judah is to some extent or another consistently under Assyria's control. They remain under Assyria's, let's say, dominion for the rest of Ahaz's life and for the first 14 years of Hezekiah's reign. 
Hezekiah, son of Ahaz, ascends the throne, 715 BC to 701 BC, 14 years. Hezekiah is paying tribute, paying taxes, bribing Assyria to not conquer them outright. Now, obviously, Judah is not the only state in that predicament, not the only nation that's fallen under Assyrian influence and paying for the privilege. Assyria is approaching its very peak of, of, of growth. They're on an expansion kick. So they've subdued the Philistines during the same period. Miss Christie, if we could have that, that map up. We'll pop back and forth to this a few times this evening. And there it goes. So by this time, Assyria is exerting influences under control of all of this region. This is not the very best map, but it has some city names that are going to be helpful to us. Um, so they've also begun to assert control over Philistia and some of the cities there. We'll talk about that in a moment. But two years into Hezekiah's reign, things start to get interesting. There's been sort of a stable equilibrium for the last couple decades not good if you're Judah, but stable. 713 BC, Ashdod, let's keep that map up if we could. Ashdod, which is right there, it's one of the Philistine cities there near the coast, rebels. They revolt against Assyria. We talked about this when we were in Isaiah 20. 713, Ashdod forms an alliance with Egypt. Egypt is down here and pushes back on the Assyrian Empire. It doesn't go well. Sargon II, Sennacherib isn't on the scene yet, Sargon II marches to Ashdod, destroys most of what's left of the northern kingdom of Israel on the way, already ruling over it, but wipes out a few cities along the way just you know, for the sake of flexing. Conquers Ashdod, puts his brother in charge of the city. Ashdod's not done, though. 712 B.C., a year later, Egypt goads Ashdod into trying again, and with the same results. Assyria comes down bigger, stronger, and as a result, the Assyrian Empire is closing in on our friends in Judah, which naturally raises the question for Hezekiah, same question his father faced. What do I do here? How do I respond? Do I stay inert? Do I push back? And as we talked about a bunch of times in chapter 28 to 35, Hezekiah had advisors on both sides of the issue. He had advisors advocating we need to form the strongest possible alliance with Egypt, raise the most powerful possible military, and push back. On the other side, in his other ear, he had Isaiah and those aligned with Isaiah saying, no, no, no. That's exactly the wrong answer. Hezekiah, what we need to do is what we should have done from the beginning. We need to trust God. Fast forward, whoops, fast forward another decade. Fast forward to 705 BC. Sargon II is killed in battle. First time that that had happened to an Assyrian king. 
which may have encouraged what happens next, widespread unrest throughout the Assyrian Empire. In many places, open revolt. And in the middle of it is our buddy King Hezekiah. Flip over to 2 Kings 18. Keep a finger in Isaiah. We'll get there eventually. But go back to 2 Kings 18. We're going to look at some of the verses that lead into the section that 2 Kings and Isaiah have in common. 2 Kings 18, verse 7. The Lord was with him. That is to say, Hezekiah. He prospered wherever he went, and he rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him. He subdued the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territory from watchtower to fortified city. Keep your Bible open there. We're coming right back. He listened to Isaiah in the sense he heard what Isaiah said but he decided not to follow what Isaiah suggested. Ultimately, he sided with those who said, ignore the prophet, let's find some allies, let's seize the moment. This is an opportunity. So Hezekiah doesn't just push back. He pulls others into the cause. He gets Edom and Moab. Look over here is Moab and Edom. He convinces them to align with him against the Assyrian Empire. When Gaza refuses, Gaza is a city-state here in Philistia, when Gaza refuses, he marches on Gaza, conquers it, and says Judeans to live there. Takes a page out of the Assyrian playbook. And when Ekron, yet another Philistine city, up here further to the north, when Ekron refuses, um, sorry, sorry, strike that, the king of Ekron refuses, the residents of Ekron settle it for him. Hezekiah doesn't have to do anything. The residents, the citizens of Ekron rise up, they overthrow their king, and they hand him over to Hezekiah and say, yeah, we don't know what he wants, but we know what we want. We want to side with you. We want to side with Judah. We want to side with Egypt. We want to side against Assyria. So things are stepping up for a showdown here. Things, are, things are, are coming together. And Hezekiah knows it. Flip to 2 Chronicles 32, or if that's annoying, just, just listen while I do. 2 Chronicles 32, the parallel account. When Hezekiah saw that Sennacherib had come and that his purpose was to make war against Jerusalem, he consulted with his leaders and commanders to stop the water from the springs which were outside the city, and they helped him. Thus many people gathered together who stopped all the springs in the brook that ran through the land, saying, Why should the kings of Assyria come and find much water? And he strengthened himself, built up all the wall that was broken, raised it up to the towers, and built another wall outside. And he also repaired the millow in the city of David and made weapons and shields in abundance. Hezekiah knows there's a showdown coming. And so he's getting ready for it. And his two chief ways of getting ready, well, three really, weapons, that makes sense, walls, that makes sense, 
Water might not be as intuitively obvious, but probably turns out to be the most important. He begins preparing for the Assyrians to push back against their, their, their uprising. And he decides we need to make sure that all of the nearby water flows into Jerusalem so that we will have it and so that our enemies won't. Some of you have heard of Hezekiah's tunnel. Some of you have walked through it. 1,750 feet underground connecting the Gion Spring to the Pool of Siloam. The Gion Spring was, was Jerusalem's main source of water. It provided more water than Jerusalem at this time really needed. So it, they, would, they would take what they needed, but the rest would overflow into the Kidron Valley. Hezekiah said, that's not good because that would allow our enemies to cut off our water supply while having water for themselves as they surround and besiege the city. So in, in, the, in the years between 705 and 701, one of Hezekiah's major projects was to create a channel, an underground tunnel, so that all of that water would flow into Jerusalem. By 701 BC, Sennacherib has had enough. 701 BC, Sennacherib says, I'm done playing games. So he marches his army down the coast. Edom, Moab, and Ammon quickly surrender. They see the handwriting on the wall. They don't like what's coming. So Edom, Moab, and Ammon say, yeah, we don't have an appetite for another war. Oh, I hate it when the sneeze gets stuck. Okay, so, so Hezekiah loses one block of allies. Sennacherib's troops make their way down the coast. Um, they, this is Joppa, what we would call Tel Aviv. They immediately take control of this region. And then somewhere in this plain, we don't know exactly where, they meet the Egyptian army. We talked about this before. They meet the Egyptian army on the plain of Altecas. Historians argue exactly about where it is. Somewhere in this region, they meet and defeat the Egyptian army. The Egyptian army goes back to Egypt with their tail between their legs. They move on to Ekron. And I'm just going to sort of, rather than continue to go back and forth, they, they go to Ekron, they defeat Ekron, they slaughter the leaders, they impale them on stakes. They go to Timna, which is not on this map, but I couldn't find a map that had it. But notice what's going on. Big picture here. Here's Judah. Okay? The army is coming down here. Their support to the east has already surrendered. Egypt has already retreated. So they have no support coming from the south. And they're cutting off, they're coming from the north, and they're cutting off any support from the west. So they're isolating Jerusalem. From here, Sennacherib splits his troops. The main force is coming this way. A smaller force comes this way along the mountains so that there's no possibility of setting a supply line up to the north. And if you remember in Isaiah 10, Isaiah actually prophesied the cities and the order in which they would fall. Micah chapter 1 um, has another set of cities, the cities and the mountains and the orders in which they fall because uh, Micah's from that region. 
But let's read what Sennacherib has to say about it. Rather than go city by city with a bunch of names that are going to be hard for me to pronounce. The king of Ashkelon, who had not submitted to my yoke, the god of his father's house himself, his wife, his sons, his daughters, his brothers, the seed of his paternal house, I tore away and brought to Assyria. Their former king I set over the people of Ashkelon, and I imposed on him the payment of tribute, payments to my majesty. He accepted my yoke. In the course of my campaign, Beth Dagon, Joppa, and other cities that I can't pronounce, who had not speedily bowed in submission at my feet, I besieged, I conquered, I carried off their spoil. The officials, nobles, and people of Ekron, uh, in, who, had, who had thrown their king, bound by oath and curse of Assyria, into fetters of iron, and had given him over to Hezekiah, the Judahite, and kept him in confinement like an enemy, their hearts became afraid. And they called upon the Egyptian kings, the bowmen, chariots, and horses, uh, and the, the king of Ethiopia, a countless host. And these came to their aid. In the neighborhood of El uh, Alteca, their ranks being drawn before me, they offered battle. With the aid of Asia, my God, I fought with them and brought about their defeat. The Egyptian charioters and princes, together with the Ethiopian kings' charioters, my hands captured alive in the midst of battle. Alteca and Timnah, I besieged, I captured, I took away their spoil. I approached Ekron and slew the governors and nobles who had rebelled and hung their bodies on stakes around the city. The inhabitants who rebelled and treated Assyria lightly I counted as spoil. The rest of them who were not guilty of rebellion and contempt, for whom there was no punishment, I declared their pardon. Uh, as for Hezekiah the Judahite, who did not submit to my yoke, 46 of his strong walled cities, as well as the small towns in the area, which were without number, by leveling with battering rams, and by bringing up siege engines, and by attacking and storming on foot, by mines, tunnels, and breaches, I besieged and took them. 200,150 people, great and small, male and female, horses, mules, asses, camels, cattle, sheep without number, I brought away from them and counted as spoil. Hezekiah, like himself, uh, Hezekiah himself, like a caged bird, I shut up in Jerusalem, his royal city. And he keeps going, but we'll stop there. 46 cities on his way to Jerusalem. And now back to 2 Kings 18, verse 13. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. That's what Sennacherib just said. He tells us 46. We have no reason to think that he's wrong. Then Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria at Lachish, saying, I've done wrong. Turn away from me. Whatever you impose on me, I will pay. And the king of Assyria assessed Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver and gold. So Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house. At that time, Hezekiah stripped the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord and from the pillars which Hezekiah, king of Judah, had overlaid and gave it to the king of Assyria. So, back to our map, Sennacherib marches, and here's Lachish. That's the last major city standing between Sennacherib's army and Jerusalem, about 30 miles of distance. And this is where he sets camp. This is where he, he establishes a staging area preparing to assault Jerusalem because he knows he has decided that, that all of the tribute that Hezekiah is paying still isn't enough. It's interesting, Sennacherib adds to that list. He says... 
Uh, as for Hezekiah, the terrifying splendor of my majesty overcame him. The Arabs and his mercenary troops, which he had brought to strengthen Jerusalem, his royal city, deserted him. So in addition to the 30 talents of gold and 800 talents of silver, gems, antimony, jewels, large carnelians, ivory inlaid couches, ivory inlaid chairs, elephant hides, elephant tusks, ebony, boxwood, all kinds of valuable treasures, as well as his daughters, his harem, his male and female musicians, which he had brought after me to Nineveh, the royal city, to pay tribute and to accept servitude, he dispatched his messengers." Hezekiah is trying to buy him off again. He's trying to do what his father did. He's trying to pay protection. But Sennacherib wants more. So he surrounds Jerusalem. He says like a, a bird in a cage, he closes up uh, uh, Hezekiah. At which point, Sennacherib sends messengers and says, hey, this is the part where you should probably talk to me about terms of surrender. And this is where we finally get to, uh, to Isaiah. Flip back to Isaiah, and we'll stay there. <laughs> I'd given up, Patrick. <laughs> but Isaiah 36... <laughs> It came to pass in the 14th year of King Hezekiah that Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. We just read that because it's a parallel passage. In verse 2, then the king of Assyria sent the Rabshakeh with a great army from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. We'll talk about Rabshakeh next week. It's a title. It's not a name. His ambassador, his envoy. And he stood by the aqueduct from the upper pool on the highway to the Fuller's Field. Pop quiz. Where have we heard that place name before? It's the exact same place Isaiah exhorted King Ahaz back in chapter 7. How the turntables, right? Exact same location where Ahaz and Isaiah 34 years earlier had that fateful conversation. Trust God or trust armies. Verse 3, Eliakim the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, Shibna the scribe, and Joah the son of Asaph the recorder came out to him. We talked about those names and those positions when we were in Isaiah 22. If we have time, we'll come back to that next week too. But verse 4, Then the Rabshakeh came and said to them, Say now to Hezekiah, carry this message for us. Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, Sennacherib, what confidence is this in which you trust? Why are you bothered? Resistance is futile. I say you speak of having plans and power for war, but they're mere words. Now in whom do you trust that you rebel against me? Look, you're trusting on the staff of this broken reed Egypt, on which if a man leads, leans, it'll go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust him. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah has taken away on his way to getting here? And said to Judah and Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar. Now therefore I urge you, give a pledge to my master, the king of Assyria. Surrender. Surrender now, in other words. The key verse here, and where we're going to pick up next week, is verse 5. 
Who do you trust? And the Rapshika offers a few options. He says, verse 5, you can trust in your own army. I don't know why you would, because you're weak. You can trust in Egypt. I don't know why you would, because Pharaoh's a flake. Verse 7, you can trust in your God, but he hasn't stopped us yet, and we've wiped out every one of the altars we've come to. Who are you going to trust? The word trust shows up seven times from verse 4 to verse 7. And understand, this isn't, isn't trust in the sense of, of hope. You know, if I give Ethan five bucks to, to go get a Happy Meal, I, I trust that he's going to pay me back. I hope that he's going to. Usually he does. But if he doesn't, it's not the end of the world. No, this is hope in the, in the, in the sense of throw yourself on your face bow down before someone that you depend on to save you. Who do you trust? Who's going to get you out of this? Who's going to save you and sustain you? That's going to be the central question, not just as we finish chapter 36, but over these next four chapters. Really, it's the central question of Isaiah. Who do you trust? Really, it should be the central question of our lives. Who do you trust? Who do you worship? Who do you depend on? Who do you bow down before? Who's going to save you and sustain you? We sang I Believe at the, at the beginning of service, the, the creed song, I Believe in God Our Father. And that's a good start. I believe in the Lord our God. We'd be, we'd be in trouble if we didn't start there. <laughs> I think we know that. But it's only a start. Because the Christian life isn't just about what we believe. A lot of it is about what we do with what we believe. I believe in the resurrection that we will rise again, for I believe in the name of Jesus. That's critically important for obvious reasons. Believing on Jesus, believing he died for our sin, changes our eternal address. Believe in your heart, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. That changes our address for the next life. But what about this life? What do we do with that in this world? Well, we do good and avoid evil and seek justice, love our neighbor. Cool. But so do a lot of people who don't know Jesus. A lot of people who don't believe what we believe still try to do those things. So let me ask again. How does faith in an eternal God change our present life? One of the big changes it's supposed to make, one of the changes God wants it to make, is we're supposed to live lives of trust. Lives of faith. Faith that God exists. Faith that he hears our prayers. Faith that he rewards those who diligently seek him. Faith that he wants to and will lead us. That he wants to and has gifted us. That he intends to, if we let him, use us. In this world. In this life. And Sennacherib, through his envoy, 
gives voice to the world's response. The Rav Shaka here says what the world says to us. I dare you to trust God like that. I mean, that's the issue he's raising. He, he's, he's throwing down the gauntlet. I dare you to believe in the God you say you believe in. I dare you to put your faith in him. We talked about the difference when we were in Hebrews. It's one thing to believe that this chair will hold my weight. But talk is cheap. And it's only talk until I sit in it. I can believe in the chair. When I sit in it, I'm putting my faith in the chair. Yeah, you guys can believe in God, Senator Zanvoy is saying, but are you willing to put your faith in him? Are you willing to bow down before him and put your lives in his hands? And the question that I'd encourage you to ponder before we come back next week is, how do you answer that question? The Rav Shaka says, I dare you to trust God. Do you? I'd encourage you, don't wait until we're back next week to think about that. Sit with that question this week. Pray on it. Talk to God about it. Let God talk to you about it, because he has a perspective. God, how much do I trust you? And then sit and listen to the answer. Do I trust God? Yes, no, if not, why not? Do I trust God? Well, it depends. Okay, depends on what? And what are you willing to do to change the answer? Sit with that. Pray on that. Listen to what God has to say about that. And we'll talk about some possible answers next week. Lord, we, we know before we even get there that that's going to be one of the awkward conversations we talked about on Resurrection Sunday. One of those conversations that we're a little afraid to have because we're a little afraid of what the answer is going to be. But then we remember who you are. You're so good. You love us so much. You've shown us so much grace already. And you tell us again and again, your mercy never runs out. Even in judgment, your mercy doesn't run out. So Lord, give us boldness as we come before you this week. With gentleness and compassion, Lord, speak to us about where we are holding back. about where we are gripping our own lives too tightly. The opportunities that we have to let you rule and reign and glorify yourself. Talk to us about surrender this week, Lord. In your holy name, amen.